And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on January 6, 2023. Rebecca Johnson is an ISA certified arborist and a true arborholic. She is addicted to helping trees and the people who care for them. Rebecca regularly provides education to fellow arborists and the general public. She serves on the board of directors for the Texas chapter of ISA as its president and is a private consulting arborist teaching homeowners about proper tree care. Rebecca has been involved with the Certified Arborist Prep courses since 2011 and was part of the cadre responsible for bringing the Certified Arborist Prep class to Austin, Texas in 2015. She currently coordinates the Austin class. Rebecca was recognized with the 2020 ISA President's Award for her work with women in culture. She is a TCIA Certified Tree Care Safety Professional, Tree Risk Assessment Qualified, and holds the Texas ISA Oak Wilt and Wildfire Risk Reduction Qualifications and has a degree in forestry from Oklahoma State University. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. Rebecca, we're delighted that you could be with us today. I'm so excited to be here. I know Hal and I have been talking back and forth about having you on our podcast, seeing you swinging through the trees on photos and We are really delighted to have a a woman arborist on, but also a key woman arborist who not only leads by her rope, but leads by her actions. So what we want to do is find out first, how did you get into the arboriculture industry and growing up in Oklahoma and your childhood, how does that help to really create the person you are today? I'm the baby. I had two older brothers, and so I was always chasing after them. Um, I grew up fairly rural Oklahoma, but my family had a farm, so I would chase after my brothers through the trees, mostly through cow paddies fields, and we'd fish and shoot the BB gun, those kinds of things. And every chance I got, I'd sneak out and go under the fence in our backyard to go into the woods behind that didn't belong to us. 
And um, so I spent a lot of time in the trees. But because I lived in a small town and I knew I needed something, I wanted something bigger, better for myself. I saw, you know, my family members that moved out. I thought, I'm going to study for computers. I'm going to be a computer scientist. I had no idea what that meant. I had an uncle that did computer stuff. So he would lend me his magazines. You know, understand this is the, the early 1980s, early to mid 80s. Computers were not in every home at that point. Internet was, you know, kind of a dream. I guess they probably had the different DGs and stuff like that with the government, but not much for individuals. So, you know, I, I got to high school, small, small school. I had 60 people in my graduating class. And so I was like trying to figure out the college track classes to take with very little help. And I decided, you know, I'm like, okay, I want to be in computers. I need to, I need to know how to type. So I took typing. And then I looked around. I'm like, okay, I probably need like some math. So I want to take calculus. But before I take calculus, because I'm kind of, my math is not strong. Um, I want to take pre-calculus. Well, they only offered pre-calculus through a um, satellite program from Oklahoma State. You actually like beamed in a satellite and you watched the video, which is how I took physics, which was not a good. But I was the only one in my entire school that wanted to take pre-calculus that year. So they looked at the transcript. They looked at my transcript. And so she took typing and she wants a math. Let's put her in accounting. And I'm like, I know how to balance a checkbook. I don't need to be in accounting. I mean, <laughs> now that I have my own business, I kind of wish I had done it. But at the time, I'm like, I don't need accounting. And so this first year, they had used the computerized system to schedule us. And they had told us, we can't make any changes the first week. We just can't because, you know, they, they're getting the computers down. So I walked into the accounting class and the teacher was somebody I'd known literally my whole life because she went to our church because it's a small town. And she looked at me and she said, what are you doing here? I said, they stuck me here. This is not where I want to be. I'm going to change my schedule as soon as I can. And she was one that had access. So she basically drugged me by my ear to the office, sat me down in front of the computer and she said, okay, here's what classes we have this hour. And I'm like, took that, took that. Nah, I, don't, I, I can't do vocal music. Um, tried art. I'm not good at art. Oh, greenhouse management. That could be interesting. I like to grow. You know, my, I gardened with my dad. I made money picking blackberries and strawberries around the farm as a kid. And um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do the greenhouse management. Why not? That, that sounds fun. So I walk into the greenhouse management class and I'm about, at that point, I'm about like 15 minutes late. And Mr. Peace was our instructor. And he looked at me and he knew me. I didn't know him, but he knew me because he had had at least one of my brothers and he went to school with my mother and my mother's sister. So he looked at me and he's like, what are you doing here? Why are you late? You're not on my list. And why are you late? And he said, so I told him the story. He laughed. He said, okay, fine. We did the whole introduction stuff. And then we finally got to work in the greenhouse. We, we had to learn everything. We had to join FFA to be part of that. You know, for our listeners, in case they don't know what FFA is, Future Farmers of America. Except that it's not. It used to be. Oh, it used now to be. strictly just FFA and has been since before I joined in 1989, 1990. They dropped the farmers because of the horticulturalists and arborists and landscapers. So they dropped farmers and it's just FFA. I know, 30, 40 years, how, how old am I now? Yeah, I remember it because I worked at the vocational level. So yeah. that's what they called it. Yeah. But yeah, so I you know, I had to be part of FFA. And then I did really well in the class because I really enjoyed it. And I was really good at plant ID. You know, in FFA, you have contests that you go to. Everybody knows about showing cattle and steers and sheep and all that. Everybody knows about that. But there's also contests for plant people. So I got put on the nursery landscape team. 
And I loved it. And I excelled at it. And I, I won state my senior year. And it was amazing. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. Remember, I said, I don't, I'm not very artistic. I don't have an art mind. Landscaping was not going to be something I could do. Like a landscape architect, because that's not how my brain works. With the new computer programs we have now, I might could have done it. But then you had to literally sit down and draw it all. And you had to have it in your mind. There was no landscape programs to see it grow, to see what it would look like. You just had to have it in your mind and translate it down. And I'm not good at that. I'm still not good at that. And so I was in another class to be part of FHA, Future Homemakers of America. And it was about careers. And so I had the Occupational Outlook Handbook, this big, I mean, it was, you know, it's a huge collection of volumes, the Occupational Outlook Handbook. So I'm looking for it for anything that's green industry, trees, plants. And I found forestry. I said, huh, you know, I like plants. I like trees. I really enjoy spending time outside in the trees. I'll study forestry. Nobody ever mentioned the word arboriculture. I had no idea arboriculture existed. We didn't have tree people in my town. You know, the tree people were my dad and his church buddies that would go out with their chainsaws and help out after storms or whatever. And so, you know, I had the, the trauma of my dad almost cutting his toe off with a chainsaw when I was in third grade. So, you know, I, I had a healthy fear of chainsaws, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study forestry and learn all about this kind of stuff. And it was good. I mean, I learned a lot of things. But I also faced a lot of discrimination. It was really tough fitting. And I'm very, especially then, I was very thin and very femme presenting. Always had long hair, always had long nails, tall and thin, 5'8", you know, like 120 pounds. I was tiny. A good wind would blow me across the Oklahoma State campus. And I'm not even kidding. It happened. And then I made the cardinal mistake of falling in love with the classmate. And so then it became, you were only here to find a husband. Oh, I've heard that one before. They, and they literally told me that. Like, <laughs> if I had known that I could file a Title IX complaint, I should have. I didn't know at the time. So luckily, I found one that is like me and Oddity. We get along really well. We're still married today. Walked across graduation and then got married that evening. So I never forget when I graduated. And I think when we talked, Rebecca, Paul is with U.S. Forestry Service. Is that right? No. So Paul was with the Texas A&M Forest Service, and now he's with the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. Okay. Yeah, so now he's with Sustainable Forestry Initiative working on urban forestry for them, which is, we have very complementary tracks. I do mostly arboriculture now. Actually, after I had so much discrimination, I became a legal assistant, and I did things like foreclosures and represented, you know, mortgage companies' bankruptcies. I did collections, which is awful. I did wills, probates, trusts, that kind of stuff. And then I worked for the city of San Antonio. They're good jobs. You can always find a job. They just didn't fit that hole in me that I needed filled. Right. And I tried to like be part of like the regulatory to have the green stuff, but those jobs just never opened. So it sounds like it must have been quite liberating for you to follow your passion, as we say, to get out of the legal profession and start your own journey to becoming a certified arborist. And then very quickly, at some point, just saying, hey, I want to help other aspiring arborists. Can you talk about your training initiatives? I know you have your own studio. And yeah, tell us how that all fell into place. My first actual tree job was working for a nonprofit. And I was doing outreach and education, which did the volunteer coordination, part of both outreach and education. I loved it. I loved teaching people. In ways I didn't realize I would. 
I got my certification while I was a legal assistant. Um, even though I wasn't working in arboriculture, I had enough experience with arboriculture to get my certified arborist. And so I was working with the master naturalists and the master gardeners and helping communicate at booths and things like that. And then I got a job at the nonprofit to teach and I loved it. But nonprofits being what nonprofits were, there were upheavals and I'm just not good at the politics stuff. And it's what it is. Sure. And the smaller the office is, the harder it is for me because the backbiting gets to me after a while. But so then I had a germ of an idea of what I could do, what I was good at. I knew I liked teaching, which shocked a lot of people that have known me for years because like, you hate to speak in public. And I'm like, yeah, I do. But now I'm learning that it's really a lot of fun. And so I left the nonprofit. It took a while, actually, after I left the nonprofit to figure out what to do. But at one point, the city of Austin put out an RFP, a request for proposals to provide a certified arborist prep class. I had been part of the group that brought it into Austin and it started in San Antonio. The Texas A&M Forest Services started in San Antonio and I had been involved with it in San Antonio as a teacher as part of the cadre. So we brought it to Austin through the nonprofit. So I basically stole the program that I brought to the nonprofit, which I feel a little guilty about, except that none of them wanted it anyway. None of them were doing it as well as I knew it could be done because they had other things that they wanted to do. And I started it because I looked around and I thought, what do I wish I had had? What does the younger Rebecca wish she had had? And that's kind of where my whole life is about right now is providing the things that would have made such a difference for me when I was first starting out. Very nice. I got the contract through the city of Austin. So they subsidize our certified arborist class. And it's, it's fabulous. A lot of people get full scholarships to come to the class. And they, it's a four-day class. They get the study guide. And we had always done it in person which, you know, has its own issues. I'm very Southern, Oklahoma. So when people come to a workshop of mine, they're going to be fed. They're going to be fed really, really well. And it's a lot of work to put together. But I, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, you know, I enjoy the hostessing thing. So we're doing it in person. We were doing it twice a year. And then COVID hit. And everything shut down. So I had a contract. I needed to provide this class. I wanted to provide this class. This was, you know, not just that I needed to. I wanted to. This is my main income. I just enjoyed it so much doing it. I enjoy meeting the new arborists and networking and connecting them to more established arborists. And so it was very frustrating for me. I'm like, oh no, what are we going to do? So we all worked together, a group of four of us worked together to figure out how we could launch it virtually. We tried multiple different types of virtual platforms before we ended up at Zoom, which I think everybody ended up at Zoom just because it was so much easier to use than most of them. And so we started offering it online. We still kept the classes small. I understand people were like, well, you know, it's online. The only limit is Zoom says you can only have 100 people. I still want to keep it to 20 to 25 people, especially since we're online, because I want to be sure that we can engage with you. And the more of you are online, the less we can engage with you. We had around 20 people the first time, and we did it virtually three or four times. And then we're now back to in-person, although we're going to have a third virtual class coming up very soon. And let me ask, when you have your class students up on the screen, are they all from Texas or do you feel like you're bleeding out to other states? Most of them are from Texas because of the grant. The the city contract requires that we have the majority be within the Austin MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area, which is a fairly large MSA. So most of them are the Central Texas region, which, like I said, really helps because I can connect them with other people. But we did have some people from multiple places When we do the in-person, we've had people drive from Oklahoma City, but luckily they're starting to be more 
done so other people, they don't have to drive as far and have a hotel and stay. Because we do it one day a week, figuring that that's about as much as people can really absorb in their mind. It's an eight-hour day. It's a lot of information that just gets thrown at you. So we feel like a week to really integrate what you learned helps a lot. I'm assuming they're coming in with varied backgrounds preliminarily to taking the course, right? Some know little and some know a lot. Right. It's very true. Now, in theory, they're all supposed to be qualified to sit for the exam. They're all supposed to have the three years of experience or their experience plus education. And that's technically true. They all technically have that three years of experience. But as we all know, your experience depends on what your job was. So we have a lot of people that are coming in that are city employees that are enforcing our city tree protection ordinance. And they're really good at that. Boy, they understand trees and construction and all that really well. But there's a lot of things they don't understand, like fertilization and maybe even like some of the pests. I find a lot of people don't understand a lot of the insect stuff. So we get very basic with some of the insect stuff. Everybody's coming in from a different point of view. Everybody has a different life experience, which is great because when we have class discussions, we have the person that has been working for a large tree care company talking to the person who's been working for, you know, basically the guy with the chainsaw in a truck. Right. Plus the city folks. And so we get lots of different experiences from folks about the way they do things. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, oh, that's not following ANSI safety standards. Can we talk about that in a minute? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about having it online because tree tenders here in Philadelphia had to shift to that same paradigm. And they did get a larger audience from outside the area and were able to take the course online and for their particular training program, not necessarily for a, a, a boar culture or for through ISA, but through the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society's programming. And I will honestly tell you that if you're drawing locally and then you're drawing a little bit further out, it makes a huge difference because you get a a lot of integration of more ideas than your very hyper-local area. You know, listening to you and, and hearing what you're saying and being overloaded with information is very true too. And as an instructor, you have a good feel for where people are mentally after this very intensive workout, mental workout, because you are doing it online, it's a lot easier when you can actually physically do and talk because you're you're actually moving your body. But to sit in one spot, it makes it very, very difficult. And I really have to applaud you for, for doing what you're doing in the way you were doing it. You know, Hal mentioned I have a studio. So I have a sit-stand desk. So I don't teach sitting. I stand up. I get the desk raised up and stand up. With my green screen, it gets a little weird because my ends of my arms disappear if I get too right, too boisterous. <laughs> yeah, but it is hard. It's really hard to see what's engaging with them. Luckily, the chat feature on Zoom is really helpful. Well, so there's always somebody who's a high performer. It's really, when I say derail, but it's usually a high performer and they're way beyond everybody else in the classroom. Or sometimes you just get people that go down weird little rabbit holes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's very true, too. <laughs> And the other thing we did was, we're keeping this one, even as we're going back in in person, is we have a Friday hour Q&A session. So for those things that are more in-depth, those questions that are more in-depth that are going to cross multiple chapters of the study guide, we say, hold that for Friday, come to Friday, and we're going to have all the instructors and we'll just discuss it. I'm sure you've heard this, that if you ask three arborists a question, you'll get five, six, maybe eight answers. 
Yes. They get to be part of that discussion as we're discussing it back and forth. And we're, you know, molding our answer around is, well, what, what about, what about, and so they see that. And it's, I think it's really good for them to see the so-called experts talking it out together and refining their ideas and maybe even totally changing their mind. Yeah, and I think that that's healthy. I mean, that that's what you'd hope would happen when you have these dialogues. In education, you know, somebody could be so staunch on, and I knew somebody that I worked with who was so staunch on his idea. And then I said to him, mm, I don't think so. And eventually the science came out that he was wrong and the statistics changed his mind. It wasn't me or somebody else telling him that changed his mind. It was the statistics. That's one thing I've run into is, you know, the science has just tree science has exploded. You know, we have the tree fund giving grants for research. We have more people doing research. And so we just know so much more now than we used to know. Even beyond what Shigo started, we know so much now. And a lot of the people that are coming in are working for people who haven't had an actual tree class since, you know, the 90s. In theory, they go to the conferences and get their CEUs, but I'm not sure they're paying attention. So they come to the class with really bad ideas about flush cuts or how you should plant a tree and things like, and I find myself, you know, you have to re-educate them. So I start my talk, my section is always on planting because it's kind of like my thing. I always start my talk with, you know, please continue your education. And I have a nursery slide from like the thirties or forties and it's showing how to plant a tree and parts of it are right, but the thing that stands out is set it in the hole a trifle lower than it was in the pot. Ah, uh, <laughs> we all know that's wrong. We all know and that's they, wrong. And yeah. Reduce it by a third, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Root shoot ratio. Make sure you know if you for every root that you cut, cut a branch. Yeah, that whole thing. Or the shadow of your root is as, as deep as the tree is tall. That was another one. <laughs> like, what? Don't cut the tap root. Don't cut the tap root. Right. And yeah. everybody said, don't cut the tap root. I'm like, okay. So yeah, I find myself having to totally re-educate people that have been taught by people that they think are experts. And I never want to come across as I'm the expert. I'm not. I'm not an expert. I mean, I read a lot. I attend a lot of conferences. I attend a lot of talks. And I, I don't remember if I mentioned this to Hal or not. My husband was on the ISA board. And as a self-employed wife, I could travel with him. So I had exposure to lots of amazing arborists that were on the ISA board. And I took advantage of talking to them every chance I got. So I've had lots of great conversations. You know, I get to ask the, the weird tree questions because I'm not afraid to ask a weird question that might sound dumb because I'm like, if I'm thinking it, somebody else is thinking it. So I get to ask all these weird questions and get, you know, good answers from people that understand and know. So it's not that I'm an expert by any means. I've just had more exposure to the experts. I was just going to say that the idea of having continuing education, when people say, I'm done school, I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> just getting started. If you want to continue learning, and you know, all three of us know that in order for us to be certified, we have to renew our, our credits every so many years, and we have to continually take classes or be teaching classes or doing research in. And that is key for success. And a lot of people don't realize that they think that they just stop where they were. And that's, that's a negative. <laughs> yeah, I never worry about how many CEUs I have. I haven't turned in CEUs for at least two of the conferences I attended this year, just because I am, <laughs> I have so many, mostly I do it. I try to turn them in just so I have a record because ISA has the record from the very beginning of. Right. Your... right. 
So it's fun to look back and go, wow, look, in 2009, I did this. 2011, I did that. I forgot about, oh, I forgot about that class, that training, that workshop. So I tried to turn it in mostly for that, but I've gotten a little lazy with some of it lately. So I need to turn them in just so I can catch up. But I mean, I'm caught up. But yeah, it's really important that you're going and, and that you're going with an open mind and that you're listening. First of all, I want our listeners to definitely go find your website, www.arborholic.com. I really liked it. And, you know, all of us look at multiple websites throughout the day, throughout the year. Yours had a very, I'll just call it human quality to it. Uh, I felt like it was going off in some areas that needed to be addressed. And one of the things, I, I think it was a either a, a, a blog entry. I think it was a blog entry that you titled Dreams and Schemes for the Industry. And it outlined a whole range of goals. And I just wondered how, and in fact, I have a few of them here. And my sense is... Let me interrupt you real quick. Yeah, go ahead. These aren't all mine. Right. Yeah. I had a sense it was maybe a poll or uh, participants submitted these things, right? Yeah. I run a Women in Trees Zoom chat once a month. And so this came from our January chat of last year. Okay. They're more than mine. They're, they're lots of, they're a bunch of women and they're all women that submitted those. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool stuff. And it's just some things we've all thought about, you know, speak at the, um, at an ISA conference, uh, do some competitive climbing, uh, become certified, travel and gain confidence, start a degree in the field, uh, more homeowner training especially structural pruning. So in general, I just thought, hey, yeah, maybe this is feminine energy, but it stood out to me, like I say, in that it was less of the, you know, grind it out for the industry and more for let's develop ourselves as human beings. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, especially the women that are on the chat are more about, we're about changing the industry through being our better selves so changing ourselves to change the industry. That's one of the things that I, I totally agree with you on. The two of us as women have seen a lot in the profession. And I remember when I sat for my exam, I think that was there was only five women out of 275 people. And that to me was very telling. And right. it's, it's, it's amazing what you're doing. So how did the women's group come about? Can you? So that's also a COVID thing. Um, Okay. Because I had the Zoom for the class. I had Zoom. I'm a very, <laughs> I don't, I don't like to waste things, let things go to waste. I don't like to spend money if I can figure out a way to say, use it multiple different ways. So ISA always has a, they have a women in arboriculture networking event at their annual conference. That is their thing. And I, I got involved. My very first conference I went to, I was certified, but I wasn't yet in the field. And um, I went because my husband was on the board and it was on my 40th birthday and it was in Toronto. So now everybody that wants to can figure out how old I am. I, I was in Toronto for that. That was a good one. That was a good one. And I said, okay, for work, you've already missed Valentine's Day and our anniversary. And now you're not going to be with me on my 40th birthday. No. He said, well, you're going to come with me. I'm like, okay. I don't, I, I don't understand why we need to spend the money for me to come with you. I mean, I'm... Obviously, we need to spend the money for me to come with you, but 
I said, you know, I don't want to sit in a hotel room. He says, no, you're going to go to the conference. You're going to participate. And you're going to participate in the Women in Arbor Culture Networking Breakfast, which I think was $50. And you know what? I mentioned that I'm frugal. You know, we're, we're, we're just making ends meet at the moment. I mean, we're doing better than that. But, you know, we have little kids. Do we really want to spend $50 in a way that we don't need to? And he's like, you, yes, you have to spend this $50. So I went and the speaker that year was Melissa Lavangi. I don't know if y'all met her, but if y'all haven't, you need to. And she basically got up and told my story that she had started in forestry, couldn't find a job. Things had been bad. You know, you know, she was treated badly. And then she found arboriculture and found her home. And it just really spoke to me. So now I know Melissa fairly well. Um, Melissa does the women's tree climbing workshops with her sister, Bear. And um, so we've spoken quite a bit, but that event showed me what was possible. So I went back the next year and then um, Dana Karcher, who was on the ISA board, came to me and she said, you know, I've been helping organize this women agriculture breakfast, but I am having other duties. Would you take over my spot? I'd love to. Yeah. Be more involved. You know, have a reason to be at conferences other than that I'm married to somebody. And besides, I'm a certified arborist. I'd love to. Great. So I started, I took over those and that was like the highlight of my year. So then here comes COVID. And they canceled the conference. So the in-person networking breakfast was canceled. And we had moved it from that point from a networking breakfast to we were a happy hour. We had moved it around trying to make it a little as easy as we could for as many women to come as we could. And so I, I was talking to my spouse and I was talking to several other people that normally attended the, or the networking event through Facebook, through Instagram, through email, in person. And I said, hey, you know what? Actually, I didn't say it. My husband said it. He says, you know what? You have a Zoom account. Have a chat. Just invite people to come have a chat and see what happens. He said, you know, have it, I don't know, the first Tuesday of every month or second Tuesday of every month. Have it the second Tuesday of every month. Timing wise, 6.30 Central feels fairly good. That's 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. So that feels like it would give as many people the opportunity to come as they as could. Sure, why not? So I did it. And I think we had like 11 women come, the first one. And I said, hey, do we want to continue to do this? And they were very ecstatic about it. So we decided and we do it. We do meet the second Tuesday of every month at 6.30 Central via Zoom. And we just cover everything from our plans for developing ourselves to struggles we're having at work and how we can address that in a way that is healthy for us and healthy for the job. There has been a time when we've had to tell somebody, look, we need to help you find a different job. Mm. This job is not working out for you. Your boss doesn't appreciate you. He's never going to appreciate you. This isn't something that you've done. This is not something you can fix. I think for a lot of women, that's, that's what we need to hear. This isn't something that's wrong with us that we can fix so much as that they have a bias that they can't get past. And we just have to move to a different place where we'll be appreciated. You know, a lot of times women hear, hey, your boss is a jerk. You can't change that. That's not for you to change. That, may, that creates a different mindset for them. And they're like, okay, well, now I know he's a jerk. I can't change it. It's nothing to do with me. He's just a jerk. And they can stay in the job because they can separate themselves from feeling like I'm doing something wrong. This is all on me to, oh, that's him. That's his problem. I can do my job and not worry about his problem. It's really empowering to hear. I, the first time I heard somebody say, your boss is a jerk and you can't change him, I thought, well, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> what do you mean? You know, you just have to find a way to live with that or not. And I'm like, what am I supposed to 
But now I realize just how empowering it is because having lived it, trying to change a boss who was a jerk and basically just killing myself in the process, once I realized that nothing was going to change, that it wasn't about me making things change, it did help me immensely. We have a woman's group here in the Delaware Valley, but it's a nationwide one, women in horticulture. And we had a conference and people were talking about people volunteered to share their life story and how they got to where they are. And there was an arborist who was there and she told some horrific stories, but she has this the guts and gumption to keep going. And she would talk to other people and they say, oh, it's just him. Oh, it's just him. It's just him. And she's really excelled in her profession. And like you said, talking with someone else and hearing someone else's story, you go up to them afterwards and you say, I totally get it. And then they feel acknowledged. And, you know, that I think that's really important, especially from a, a woman's standpoint in a, in a male-dominated industry. Yeah, it's, it can be difficult, you know? And a lot of the men feel like we're coming in trying to change them, trying to make the industry more weak. You know, they feel like it's a he-man job. We have to be strong. And, and I'm like, go to the International Tree Climbing Championship and watch those women. Watch Joe Hedger. Watch them as they're climbing and tell me that it's all about strength. It is about strength, a lot of the stuff, but it's also just about finesse, finesse knowing yeah, your body and yeah, how to move your body and thinking things through. You know, you don't have to use brute strength for everything. We have mechanical advantages now. It's not weak to use our mechanical advantages because then we can climb for longer and work for longer. I don't really climb much. I truly only climb at the Women's Tree Climbing Workshops. I just have pictures because all women have pictures of themselves climbing trees because it's such an empowering strong feeling thing. I don't have any because I have a difficult time with heights. So I have to be really careful of that. But something that you said made made me think women know their bodies pretty well when they can realize that gravity pushes the baby out very quickly. (laughs) So we know our bodies pretty well. Right. (laughs) And what we can do and what we can't do. (laughs) And we're aware when we're not strong. Yeah. Oh, sure. We're willing to look for things to counteract our lack of strength rather than it's not a personal failure. It's not saying that we're, you know, the patriarchy hurts everybody. The patriarchy hurts men. And I wish more men would realize how hurt they're being by trying to be this big, strong, stoic person. Um, It's not good for them. So, but women are, you know, used to the idea of, well, that can's a little hard to open or that jar is hard to open. Do I have somebody that might be able to open it for me? Do I want to mess with that? Or do I just want to find a tool that's going to help me open these cans? That's that's the answer, the tool. (laughs) And so we're used to the idea of using tools to do things. So we adapted more quickly to using the different tools. You know, tree climbing has been informed drastically by cave climbing, by cavers, because cavers can't touch the cave as they go down into things. They actually climb the rope rather than tree and We've adapted so many of their devices and techniques for tree climbing, and it's our trees are better off for it. But that that's an interesting perception because our air spade comes from trying to get coal miners out of coal mines. So I did not know that. That's how that's how they came about because when they used that pressure, they didn't want to hurt the person, but wanted to move the rock, and that's how the air 
spade came into our industry. You know, we're working with plants that are in the ground and we're finding instruments that have been used to extirpate people out of out of the ground. So we can actually extirpate trees out of the ground by using an air spade. I think it's it's really fascinating that there's that connection between the two. Your insight into the industry is incredible, Rebecca. And I hope a lot of women listen to this because they need to. Well, I would say I hope a lot of a lot of guys listen to it as well because you know, and we don't have time to go into the bigger philosophical questions, but and I agree, you know, if it is male dominated and led by a patriarch, all that's got to change anyway because the, the industry has to reconfigure itself as we move into the Anthropocene and the climate catastrophe that's unfolding in front of us, you know. I mean, I love climbing. I got to do it into my late 30s, but now I'm enamored with planting, you know, and Eva mentioned your reproductive skill set. And it actually takes me into the our final question. I'm sure Evil will remember when we were getting the podcast off the ground. Hey, right when the pandemic was starting, sounds familiar. Um, we talked about Mother Earth and feminine energy, caring for the earth, recommitting to stewardship, etc. And caring for trees, improving soils, tree planting and forest preservation are all part of this. We've kind of spoken to it already, but the planting piece for the tree care industry, do you ever see that expanding and even becoming you know, 50% of the equation? I don't know that it will get to 50%, but it is expanding. I actually was talking to a local arborist the other day about his, and he now has a whole planting crew, that that's what they do, which I'm super excited about because when I have, as a consulting arborist, when clients want to plant trees, they never listen to me say plant a five gallon. They want the big ones. Yeah, that's got to change. Yeah, I agree. That, you know, that's, that's got to change. We got to start small, treat smaller trees adapt so much quicker, but they always want the big ones. And I can't plant a big tree. I don't, I'm not set up to plant a big tree. That's, I wouldn't want to even want to plant a five gallon, to be honest, but I could plant a five gallon for them. So for me, if they want a big tree, I have to send them to one of the local nurseries and it's the local nurseries that are planting them. And they're not doing a great job. They're Mm -hmm. just not, they don't understand how to plant a tree into the landscape. So I'm super excited that my arborist friend has realized that this is an issue. Now he's got to get the word out because I didn't know. And I'm the one, I'm one of the ones recommending people. So now I know I can recommend his company and they have a wholesale. They can buy the trees wholesale and plant it. So they never even have to go through a nursery, which is great because they can have an arborist who knows what they're doing, picking their tree. So they're not getting whatever tree the nurseries decided they need to get rid of that week. And I I sound negative about nurseries and I really don't mean to be negative. They do a lot of great things. It's just, they don't always know what they don't know. Well, that's where I, I said to how we need to bring them into the fold. They need to be part of ISA. We need to have standards for the people who work in the industry. And, you know, when we talk about men and women in the industry, there are so many things that we both can do, whether it's planting a tree properly or whether it's pruning on the ground, whether it's pruning up off the ground. There's an array of things, but that kind of brings me to the person that we had on a while ago, Mahoney. I think it's John Mahoney. Right. From West Coast Arborists, who said their business is seed to senescence. 
those were his words. I loved it. Seeds to senescence. And wasn't the Starbursts have been big part of the urban wood reclamation movement? Yes. Yes. And the whole like they're beyond senescence. They're in seed to, you know, senescence right. products. So they're pretty great. But so the whole industry should be connected, whether it's timber, whether it's seed collecting, whether it's your exploration for seed, what type of tree you're picking, all of that should be part of ISA and the standards that we should have across the board because the world is struggling right now. We can't, we can't grow enough trees to plant. And we need to be sure that we know how to care for the trees that we plant. That's and, you know, exactly right. You and I know how important that early phase of a tree's life is being properly planted and then being properly cared for the first few years of its life from getting that structural pruning that's going to set it up to have a good, strong form so it doesn't fall apart in the first storm. But also it comes to making sure that we're propagating the right trees. You know, we spent so many years trying to find an elm tree, American elm tree, that's not susceptible to Dutch elm disease. And so we latched onto these trees that weren't susceptible without paying attention to the fact that I won't say all of them because I don't have that much experience with American elms, but the ones I have seen have had really poor form and that's in their genetics. That's something that, you know, we can do structural pruning, but we're not going to change their genetics. So they're always going to have to be structurally pruned. So we need to spend time figuring out what trees have good genetics for form as well as other parts so that we don't have to spend so much time and we don't give arborists, the person with the chainsaw, as many opportunities to do poor stuff like lion's tailing or topping, which are the big things here. You know, if you'll indulge me, because we always find with great guests like you, Rebecca, that the time goes fast. But if you'll indulge me, can you talk a little bit about what the state of Texas is dealing with, with oak wilt disease? Oak wilt. We have a whole qualification on oak wilt. We actually started it. They right. They moved them to other states. So our main problem with oak wilt, and especially in central Texas, is the way it spreads through the roots of live oaks. Live oaks make up a good portion of our canopy. I think by stem number, live oak is, I want to say it's number two by stem number. What do you mean by that? By the number of trees, just just the sheer number of trees, not the volume of the trees. Number, the number one tree in Austin by individual tree yeah. is ash juniper, I believe. And then making out the top four, we have ash juniper, we have Celtislava gata, sugarberry, and ash juniper is juniper's ashii. Celtislava gata, sugarberry, and then we have the live oak, either Quercus virginiana or Quercus fusiformis. It's, we have our native live oak is fusiformis, and so it's, they didn't divide that in the census they did. And um, Texas persimmon, diospirus texana, which is wonderful, lovely little tree. Yeah. And your elm, almost crassifolia. Those are our top five trees by number. Now, Texas persimmon's a small little tree. Um, it may not even be considered a tree in places that have big trees. It gets to about 20 feet tall. A lot of people would just consider it a shrub. Ash juniper tends to stay fairly small, 20 feet tall and compact. Both of those are compact. Cedar elm gets taller, but it's still somewhat compact. But our live oaks spread huge. So while they're, like I said, number two by the number of trees we have, by the amount of canopy they provide, they are way more than number one. Got it. You know, they out. And so because uh, we had the native live oaks, the Kirkus fusiformis, and a lot of them were here before town was developed. As they develop, they move out into places where there's Kirkus fusiformis and then plant Kirkus virginiana. But all the root systems are connected. 
Live oaks propagate by modding where they send up little root sprouts. So a lot of the trees have a parent tree elsewhere. So we get a tree that gets oak wilt through a wound, um, either a pruning wound or maybe storm damage, some kind of a wound. The little beetle carries the fungus. It comes to the tree and it gets into the, down into the root system. We can treat the trees. We can treat the trees above ground. There's uh, The trade name is Alamo. I can't remember the chemical name. We can treat the tree and we're gonna, we can save the tree, but we don't prevent the spread of oak wilt through the roots. Hmm. Once it is in the live oak population, once, once it's in a population of live oaks, it's there. And there's nothing we can do to stop it from moving to the next tree. So we just have to treat trees as they start to show symptoms or as they get, as a tree that shows symptoms gets within 75 to 100 feet, we will go ahead and treat the tree. Eventually, all the trees have been treated and live oak has spread as far as it can through the roots and it's fine and you can save a population that way or you've removed trees. And that works, that works in urban areas where you have homeowners that maybe have some money and that is they only have one, maybe two live oaks on their property. So the cost is expensive, but it's not going to kill them. You get out into the hill country of Texas where we have basically ranches and there's just hundreds of live oaks on a piece of property, they can't afford to treat those trees. You know, there's just no way you can treat that many. So once the disease is entered, and if you drive out through the hill country and you look around, once you know what you're looking for, you just see populations of dead oaks mm-hmm. and you see it and you see the it's spreading because it spreads in a radial pattern. So you'll see just gradually more dead oaks. And then as you get to the edge of that, you'll see oaks that don't have as many leaves as the ones around them do. And they just don't look as healthy. And if you get up close, you can actually see the symptoms on the leaves. It's a vascular disease and it's, it's devastating. It is. I didn't realize how devastating because I live in urban areas and we can treat trees. And then I went out to the hill country and knowing with the, you know, with the eye, knowing what to look for. And I saw it and it's, it's awful. We do things like we dig trenches to try to break up the roots and they work for a while. And I mean, maybe they do work more than I, longer than I think they do. And it's just a new disease started. Oak wilt is spread by a beetle. And what happens is when a red oak gets infected, and it's only red oaks, not white oaks, not live oaks. When a red oak gets infected, it can produce a fungal mat on the outside. And if it gets infected at the right time of year and that fungal mat is there, then the beetles come along. The fungus smells like pineapple. It's really sweet. It's kind mm-hmm. of fascinating. And those beetles are just attack, attracted to sweet things. They're called picnic beetles. They're nitidulid beetles, but they're called picnic beetles because they come and get on your cake and in your soda and they're just attracted to sweet things. So they grow and they roll in the, the fungal mat and just get, you know, just love it. And then they smell you cutting a tree and they smell that fresh sap and they come flying that fresh sap. And so they get there pretty, they can get there pretty quickly and start the process of spreading it through the tree. So we teach prevention. We teach the idea of if you have a red oak that died of oak wilt, destroy it. You know, don't just cut it down, actually destroy it, chip it up. Chipping works just great. Chipping is enough to break up the the fungal and allow it to dry out so that fungal mats can't form. So chipping it works great or burn it. And then, you know, when you are pruning a live oak, prune at the right time of year. Don't prune when the fungal mats are active, which with climate change is changing. The Forest Service, A&M Forest Service, told me the, uh, last year that they found a fungal mat in the middle of January. I was just going to say, you don't have the cold period that you really need to keep them uh, at bay. Well, you know, and 
the Beatles were never going to eradicate the Beatles. They don't rely on anything in particular. So we're never going to eradicate them. It's just about prevention. So finding the red oaks that have killed for, been killed and then getting rid of them before they can start a fungal mat. So we generally tell people don't prune between February and June. So July 1, you can start pruning and you can prune up until January 31st. The idea being that there shouldn't be a fungal mat and or the beetle shouldn't be active either way. And then we teach, and this is one that people that are from outside the area freak out. We teach people to paint the wounds on the oak trees. And the idea is just we're excluding the beetle. We don't want that sticky, tarry tree stuff. We just want something, a light something that's just going to mask that scent and exclude the beetle. And we need it done quickly because the beetles can be there within 30 minutes, maybe even closer, sooner if there's one close by. So what kind of paint are you recommending? What kind of? I buy the cheapest I can buy at um, the big box store. A latex type paint? Yeah, I'm doing a very light coat, so I'm not worried how long it's going to last. I want to make sure that it's not phytotoxic, but that's difficult unless you're a chemist. So I'm just hoping the best that what I'm using isn't phytotoxic, but I'm also only doing a little bit. And do you use a white paint? Whatever color strikes your fancy. <laughs> typically, we use, typically we get black or brown uh-huh. or gray to try to match the bark. But I have seen, especially city employees, I've seen use bright colors so that people that are seeing pruning know that they're painting because Austin is very oak wilt literate. That's good. So if they see somebody plant, pruning an oak tree and they can't tell that they have painted, they will be calling the city council and complaining. It's, it's actually pretty amazing, the tree wow. community in Oakland. Austin wonderful. cares about their trees. It's hot here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can't let you go without giving us your answer on the final question. The last question is, what is your favorite tree or group of trees? I knew you were going to ask this because I've been listening to the podcast. And right now, my favorite individual tree is a Mexican sycamore that's along the trail that I walk along. Hotness Mexicana. And they're just... They're beautiful sycamore trees and they have these white underside leaves that in the wind, when the wind blows, it just looks like the tree's covered in white flowers. And this particular tree, we've lived here nine years. I've watched this tree double in size in nine years. It's quite large now. And it just, it's just watching it grow and seeing it has this perfect architecture that just sings my soul, seeing these perfectly spaced branches but when I think about my favorite species of tree, I, had to, I was thinking, I'm like, what is my favorite species? And I realized that the tree that speaks the most to me is the redbud, Circus canadensis. It's Oklahoma State tree. But when I moved to Texas, we moved way far south Texas, and there wasn't a redbud that grew there. And I missed it. And I found, you know, there's a couple of trees that are kind of closely related, Anacacho orchid, Bahinia trees are kind of closely related. So they have a lot of the same form. And so they, they came close to speaking to me the same. But I just love how graceful red buds are. You know, they have this beautiful, sinuous form that's, they just kind of look like a ballerina. The heart-shaped leaves, the beautiful pink blooms that are edible. And the other thing, to me, they're very resilient trees. They die. You know, they get knocked down and they die. But one comes back from the root every single time. Mm, and so they're just or in my experience every single time one comes back from the root so they're just incredibly always reinventing themselves basically life knocked them down they didn't stay down they came back up as a new better form of themselves they're just like my, they're my heart tree they're the tree that speaks the most to me lovely 
my family is mad at me because when they volunteer in my yard, I don't cut them down. So I've got a couple growing in places that as an arborist, I know I shouldn't leave them there. But as a tree person, I just can't not. They just sing to me. We won't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, they're, they're wonderful. And you have a lot of variations on the species down there too with you know, Mexicana and Tex- Texensis. There's one that has almost a blue tinge to the leaves and the edges of the leaves are super wavy. So they're just gorgeous wow. to watch. You know, and when I say wavy, they're still entire leaf margins. Undulating. Yeah, yeah, they just undulate around and they're just, they're beautiful. Which one is that? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. I think it's the Mexicana, but I can't swear to that. Mexicana has some interesting variations on the species, which I think are really fascinating. And then here we have the leaf cutter, leaf cutter bees, and they love red bud leaves. So then the leaves get like these lacy edges from the leaf cutter bees coming and cutting them, which people come to me and they're like, oh my goodness, it's killing my tree. No, it's not. Just, just learn to enjoy the lace. Just love nice. the lace. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. You've made our day and certainly have, have given us a lot to think about. I appreciate y'all. And I've been telling people about the podcast. And we appreciate all the love you give the trees down in Texas. It's wonderful. It's hot here. I mean, it's 56 here today. I think that's what we've got. We're about that today, too. <laughs> you know about the heat. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a climate. <laughs> <laughs> well, take care. Again, it was great. And keep doing the great work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Plant a Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.